Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Good morning, everyone. My name's Chris. I'm the um, pastor of Life Groups here. I'm going to be preaching to you today. Um, before we dive in, I just wanted to share a story. Um, a couple years ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to uh, visit uh, Korea, Seoul, Korea, and uh, we were serving um, a church at the time, and the church had their mother church in Korea, and every year this church would host this annual pastor's conference where they would bring pastors from all over the world, um, and my pastor had told me, hey, I would love to take you to Korea, and I was like, that'd be great, I'd love to take my wife. And he's like, that'd be possible. And I was like, it'd be awesome if you could pay for it. And he's like, we can. So I was like, sweet. We're, I mean, deal. We'll do it. So we had a trip paid to go to Korea, and we went. Um, and for some reason, you know, I didn't think about the whole passport issue, right? I was like, yeah, my passport's good. My wife's passport's good. It didn't even cross my mind to check our passports. Um, <clears throat> and then um, we were leaving on a red eye Monday night. And on Sunday, my pastor says, can you please make sure your passports are current? I said, oh, no problem. They're current. And Anna looks at me and just says, you know what? I don't think my passport's current. And I'm like, okay, let's find our passports. And uh, we find mine. Mine's good to go. We look at my wife's and find hers, and she's not good to go. We're supposed to leave the next day. So it's a big challenge. Um, Call Alaska Airlines, ask them if that's okay. And they're like, no, she has to have a passport here in Anchorage because even though you're flying through Seattle, this is still considered uh, an international flight and you need to have a passport at the point of your departure. So I said, okay. So I woke up very early the next morning, called the U.S. passport office, and uh, they weren't very encouraging. <laughs> they were saying, it's probably not a good, not good chance that you're going to be able to go. I called several of those you know, passport agencies that can you know, expedite your passport, and they, they wouldn't be able to get it to Anchorage in time for us to leave, um, being it was going to be that same day. So I um, decided just to seek the Lord's wisdom there, and we called and called the passport office and talked to a different lady this time, and she was saying, hey, I have an idea for you. You could, if you can, get to Seattle, and uh, if you have enough time between your, you know, between your departure to Korea, you could go to the passport office and attempt to get the passport the same day there. And I was like, wow, how possible is that? She goes, well, it's, I can't guarantee you, but it's possible. So I said, okay, we've got, we've got a plan here, so decided to go with that. But the problem is I couldn't leave Anchorage with my wife without her having a passport. So remember that we had a church member that worked at Alaska Airlines, and we called her and said, is there anything you could do to help us out? And she goes, absolutely, we can get you on that flight to Seattle without a passport. So that, that comes out to play. So we, we end up going to Seattle, and we land there early in the morning, and we literally get on a bus to go to downtown Seattle to go to the passport office. And we hurry, and we go to the passport person. We're like, hey, this is our situation. We really need this passport. We're, we, have a, we, have a, we have a connecting flight in a few hours. Is, can this be done? She goes, no guarantees, but uh, we'll see. So we start filling the paperwork, and we took some passport photos at Costco, and we gave her the photo, and she goes, these photos aren't good enough. I'm like, oh, man. So we had to run across the street and go to Kinko's, take new pictures, come back, and submitted everything, and, and we're just waiting. Well, we ended up, um, we ended up getting, um, getting the passport back in time. It left us uh, 45 minutes to get back to, um, to the airport, and I called a friend. He came and picked us up, and we went, and we were, we were at the gate. 
And then uh, that was like the first part of the challenge. The next part is, I don't know if you remember a couple years ago in Anchorage when, when we had a, like a string of bad weather where the roads were really slick and they canceled school for like a week and it was a glorious day for all our children, right? It's like, yes, another, and the whole week canceled the school. Um, and the, my pastor was coming to Seattle to meet us to connect to Korea and his flight was delayed. So we had now 15 minutes from the point of the time that he had to land to where he had to go to a different concourse and get on the same plane. And my pastor was new to America, the first time he ever flew through SeaTac, you know, and that can be a little challenging at times, right? Um, and especially if you're going from one concourse to another concourse, and you've got to do it in like 10 minutes. So I asked the lady, I'm like, can you please hold the plane? Like, my pastor has to come with us. And she's like, we can't do that. I mean, you can go, but, you know, we're not going to be able to hold the plane. I'm like, oh, man. So I literally, like, run as fast as I can to this other concourse. As soon as he gets off the plane, I literally grab him. I'm like, we got to go. And I'm just dragging him through, through SeaTac, you know, through going down to the, to the metro and, like, grabbing him. And he's just like, he's got his bags. And, and it's just, we must have looked really funny. And, you know, I'm, I, I, I sweat fast. So I was just, I was, like, drenched in sweat. And, and we're running to the gate. I'm like, hold the plane. Hold that plane. Don't leave. And we made it just in the nick of time when we got on that plane. And I share that story with you because we all face different challenges, right? And we all have crazy stories where, like, you know, we had little victories over different challenges like that. But I think one of the realities that has to set in for all of us is there are some challenges that we will face that we won't be able to overcome in our own resources. Let me give you an example. According to experts, and not saying that they're always right, but 10 gigantic challenges facing humanity for the next 50 years are some of these. Energy. Food, poverty, disease, democracy, water, environment, terrorism and war, education, population. These are real life issues, would you guys say? Yeah. And everyone has a suggestion as to how we should go about dealing with these challenges, right? But no one really has a solution. People are doing good things and people are attempting to, but I think... As we look at these challenges, one of the things, and I don't mean to oversimplify, but I can tell you what, our biggest problem, our biggest challenge is sin. We and our own resources have no solution for it whatsoever. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much strength or creativity or intelligence that you can muster up, there's no solution for that based on our own resources. And I know this may be an obvious thing, especially if you're a Christian, but what I'm coming to find out in my life, as well as a lot of other Christians, is that a lot of times we don't believe that. But we we know that God does have a solution, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. But what I find is that I often live like this, where Jesus is walking ahead of me, right? And Galatians 5 tells us that we need to keep in step with the Spirit, right? So in, in other words, we need to follow the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't follow us. And like we're following the Holy Spirit, and we're like, hey, hey, Jesus, can you, can you, can you hold on a second? And Jesus is like, yeah, sure. And, and, and he waits, and he goes, okay, can you, Jesus, can you just have a seat right here? All right, I'm, I'm going to figure this out, okay? Let, let me go see what I need to do, and let me just, can you, just, just wait right there. And I tell you that illustration because that's how we live our lives a lot of the times. The way that we go about trying to muster our own courage and our own strength. And we're like, Jesus, just stay there. 
where it's, it's, it's the man that's sitting there that has all the strength, all the, the victory, every, every, I mean, everything that we need for life and godliness is in this person. But how often do we say, sit there and wait. Let me figure this out. I got this. And I'm going to make a bold and simple statement today, all right? The point of this message is something you already know. And it's that Jesus is the answer to every single challenge you face. And I'm not meaning to preach to you just like this obvious message, or, but I'm just, I just, it's been so in my heart because we forget the simple truth. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 18 and in Mark chapter 10 that we have to become like children to enter the kingdom of God. We have to receive the kingdom of God like children. We have to have a childlike faith, a childlike trust. And these are stories that you've all heard before. But what I'm challenging you with today, I pray that you would just, you would ask the Holy Spirit to reveal more of Christ to you because he is the only answer that we have. He is the only hope that we have. It's Jesus Christ. We can't look anywhere else. We cannot. And we're going to look at Mark chapter 5. We're going to look at the whole chapter, and we're going to see in Mark chapter 5, there's three different face-offs, okay? Um, I, I call it Jesus versus the three Ds. Mark chapter 5, 1 through 20, Jesus faces the demons. Mark chapter 5, 25 through 34, Jesus faces disease. Mark chapter 5, um, 35 to 43, Jesus faces death. And I'm going to give you three snapshots of these face-offs. And they, let me tell you what. These face-offs, these snapshots could easily be divided into three sermons. I'm going to do it in one because I'm crazy, all right? Um, and, but remember, these are snapshots, okay? So you're going to have to go back and read Mark chapter 5 sometime. My prayer is that we would just get a picture of it, and then you could go back and analyze and, and look at all the detail in the background. But Mark's gospel is one of my favorites because it's the gospel for, for us with short attention spans, Right? Do you notice how Mark starts? Mark doesn't start off with the genealogy or, or the birth of Christ, right? He just, bam, Jesus is like, he's, he's entering the ministry, and he's like, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's like, if you're, if you're, if for those of you that like action movies, it's like Mark just starts off with an explosion, right? And it's just explosion after explosion after explosion, but with purpose. <laughs> it's not a meaningless uh, action movie. One theologian calls Mark the go gospel, Right, it starts with that bang. But there is something that is clear in Mark's gospel. He's making clear who Jesus is. He wants his readers to so know that this Jesus is the only, the one and only Son of God. And it's the beginning of his gospel, of the good news of how Jesus brings salvation to all people. And how does this servant, how does this Son of God do it? He does it by becoming a servant and given his life as a ransom for many. It's a king that serves by serving. And Jesus, the Son of God, is the ultimate hero, the undisputed champion of the world. He enters the scene and he says, everyone, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And he wasn't talking about the kingdom of God as in some geographical thing that's just coming and entering the scene. He was talking about the reign and rule of God. It's here in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't this passive thing. It was a very aggressive move that Jesus, he's entering the scene. 
into the darkness. The light is coming into the darkness. And he says, the reign and rule of God is here. Repent and believe the gospel. So we're going to have a couple people just read. I asked some volunteers to read the scriptures. So um, I'm going to ask them to read, and then I'm, I'm going to preach on that section. Um, so if you'll open up to Mark chapter 5, of, um, uh, I'm going to have um, uh, my reader read uh, that section now. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now with a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion sitting there clothed in his right mind and they were afraid and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon possessed man and to the pigs and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region as was getting in, as he was getting into the boat the men the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and begged, began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Amen. Mark chapter 5 has just been ministering to, to my own heart. But here we come to this just awesome story of Jesus and Jesus' encounter with, with a man that's, that is possessed with an unclean spirit. And the precursor to this story <clears throat> is Jesus calming the storm, right? In Mark chapter 4. And we see that there, what Jesus is trying to show us, what Mark is trying to show us about Jesus, the Son of God, is that Jesus is Lord over all creation, over all nature. But now he's about to show us that this same Jesus, the Son of God, is Lord over the demonic, over Satan and all his demons. They got nothing on Jesus. So Jesus and his disciples, they cross over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to this place in reality called Gersa and is immediately greeted by this demon-possessed man. Matthew's gospel tells us that there were two, that there were two men and that they were so fierce that no one could pass by. The account in Luke tells us that this man was naked. And here in Mark, we're told that this man lived among the tombs. 
And the tombs were, were caves cut out of these rocky areas. And some, some theologians believe that this was the place uh, you know, for the dead. But it was also a place for, for those that were demented, those that they couldn't control, those were that, were, that were out of their mind. They would put them in, in these tombs, very, very cruel. And right off the bat, Mark tells us that this man had an unclean spirit, and, and he was among the dead, which is it's very insightful because Mark is trying to tell us this man is unclean. This man is considered unclean. And no one could tame this wild man. He was so strong that people attempted to shackle his feet and chain his hands together that he was like Hulk smash and boom, and he would just, he would just like break the shackles like nothing, like it were just pieces of, 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 of candy cane. And he also went around howling. I don't know what, like, what kind of sound he was making, but it says he was screaming. And he would cut his body with these sharp stones. So you could imagine that this man with an unclean spirit, right, who was super strong, had superhuman strength, had all these scars over his body and open flesh wounds. This guy probably hasn't showered or shaved for a long time, too. And remember, he's naked, right? So do we all have that image in our mind? And then in verse 6, it tells us, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. I don't know about you, but if I'm a disciple, right, I'd be freaked out right now. There is this man with super strength, like all cut up, like howling and screaming, and he's running towards us. I know some of you are bold and adventurous, but I, I would be behind Jesus saying, Jesus, you, you got this, right? <laughs> we don't know why this man initially came running towards Jesus, But as soon as he did, he fell down, and the unclean spirit within him said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. That phrase, Son of the Most High God, just like circle in your Bible and just say, Awesome. The title was used in the Old Testament, and it was often used by Gentiles to refer to the superiority of the true God of Israel over all man-made gods. Even the demon, all right, was saying, you are the one and only God of the universe. It's the same term used in Genesis when Melchizedek speaks of the, the, the most high God. It's the same term that Nebuchadnezzar used when, when, when he was pleading with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Will the, will the most high God save you? And this is, this is important. The demons even acknowledge the lordship of God. Even the demons are monotheists. So the demon begged and pleaded with Jesus to not torment him they, because they know their fate. One day, they along with their boss will be thrown into the eternal abyss. It just wasn't their appointed time yet, but they were scared that it was. So Jesus asked this demon what his name is, and he says, Legion, for we are many. A legion... It was a Roman army, um, Roman army regiment numbering about 6,000 soldiers. If you were to go like one against 6,000, that'd be pretty intimidating, right? So in this mind, already like this, this demonic stronghold in this man's life, I mean, we are many. My name is Legion, for we are many. And this Legion begs him not to send him out of the country, but rather to send him among a huge herd of 2,000 pigs. And Jesus allows him for some reason. We don't know exactly why. Theologians have guesses like, why did Jesus allow them, allow this legion to say, like, don't send us out of the country. We still want to, we, we want to have a little influence in this country. Don't send us out completely. 
And he's like, please, Jesus, send us among the pigs. And Jesus allows him to. I don't know why. We can only speculate. And if there's anyone that says this is the reason why, they're wrong because we, don't really, we really don't know why. But all we can do is look at Jesus and trust that it was for a good reason. Maybe, maybe some examples. Maybe, maybe, um, maybe he wanted to show the man what exactly he was delivered from. We don't know. But we do know that Jesus allowed them to, to go. But can you imagine the, the scene? You're a pig herder, okay? You've got 2,000 pigs. And this is like, you know, when you look at the pigs, you don't see pigs. You see, you see money, right? And then all of a sudden, they all start acting crazy, and they're all screeching, and they literally start running downhill into the water. 2,000 pigs. I'm sure it was crazy. And the herdsmen freaked out. <clears throat> rightfully so, and they told everyone in the city and in the country what had happened. In the meantime, Jesus, his disciples, and the man that was possessed with the legion are there. That would have been another conversation I would love to hear. While the other herdsmen had gone off and were like, hey, man, this is what happened, this is crazy, Jesus is sitting with this man that had been possessed by the legion. The news is out. The people begin to come to the scene, <clears throat> and what do they find? Mark five fifteen. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. <laughs> you got to love that, right? Like the people come, and they see Jesus, and they see this man who no longer had the legion. He's now sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. And guess what? They're freaked out. They're like, Jesus, this guy's too normal now. We're not used to that. What happened? And what I want us to focus on here is that this man, do you notice his status now? There's three things. He's sitting, he's clothed, and he's in his right mind. Prior to that, he was wandering aimlessly from tomb to tomb to tomb. He was, screech, he was screaming. He was cutting himself. He had no rest whatsoever. He was always on the move, looking for the next person to pounce on. I mean, just looking for the next person to destroy, just looking to cause chaos. Now this man is sitting at rest. This man who was naked and just, I mean, totally just flaunting and showing himself off is now clothed because he's met Christ. And now this man who was out of his mind is sitting there in his right mind. It's a picture of complete restoration. It's a picture of our beautiful Savior who is always willing to engage those that are unclean and make them clean. That's snapshot number one. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. The people beg Jesus to leave. They're just freaked out. They don't care what happened. They beg him to leave, and he obliges and as he's leaving, the man, this man that had been possessed, he, he, <clears throat> you can almost picture him just chasing after the boat and saying, Jesus, please take me with you. You've done so much for me. I just want to be with you. Like, take me. And this is a request that Jesus has to deny. But he's, he doesn't just deny it. Verse 19 tells us that he looks at him and he says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mer- had had mercy on you. And so this man did. And verse 20 tells us, And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. 
Jesus, no, he didn't go back there, but guess what? He left a witness back there. Those that have been changed by Jesus can't help but tell others about Jesus Christ. He's that good. Snapshot number two. This is uh, Jesus facing disease. We're going to have Scripture read from Mark chapter 5, 21 through 34 at this time. And when Jesus had crossed across, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him and in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she had that she was healed of her disease And Jesus, perceiving in himself that the power had gone out of him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see what and to see who had done it. And the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembled and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Amen. So Jesus and his disciples, they crossed back over to most likely the western or the north, northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee because he had just been, they just asked him to leave because they were freaked out by that miracle. And it's a good chance that they're now in this place called Capernaum. And a great crowd was already gathering there waiting for him. And he comes off, and then he's immediately approached by this man named Jairus, who's one of the rulers of the synagogue, is what the scriptures tell us. Uh, And the writers, the gospel writers, this designation, ruler of the synagogue, indicates someone of importance. The ruler of the synagogue was a president over the board of elders who were over the affairs of of that local synagogue. He may have been a lay ruler. Nevertheless, this was an important person. What he felt about Jesus prior to this, we don't know if he had negative or or positive feelings about Jesus. He obviously knew about Jesus, but he comes to Jesus desperate. And he literally, the scriptures tell us that he fell to his face at the feet of Jesus, begging him, Jesus, please heal my dying daughter. Please heal her. She is dying. Jesus agrees to go to his house to see his daughter, and, and as they're on their way, a great crowd follows him, and then there's an interruption in their daily schedule. And you have to love this about Mark, because Mark likes to sandwich events in between each other. And here's, here's an example of it. A woman who had been bleeding internally for 12 years enters a story. Uh, this may have been some chronic menstrual uh, disorder or uh, uterine hemorrhage. We don't exactly know, but it's most likely one of those. Whatever it was, it made her ritually unclean. And this is no little deal. Leviticus chapter 15 gives the Israelites God's laws regarding bodily discharges and how we're to go about dealing with them. 
So in this woman's case who had been bleeding for 12 years, she was in this perpetual state of being unclean, never being able to be ritually or ceremonial clean, which is a big deal in this time of history, which meant that she was cut off from her family, which meant that she could not, she could not gather with her people. She was like literally a cast off, and she had to literally tell everyone, I am unclean, I am unclean, I am unclean. Anywhere I sit, anything I touch, if you touch me, you're going to be unclean. 12 years, 12 years she deals with this. She was constantly bleeding. She constantly had a constant flow. She consulted physician after physician, the scripture tells us. In other words, I mean, it, I mean, just as medical care is expensive today, it was so back in the day as well. And it tells us that she had spent all her fortune looking for a cure for her disease. But the scripture tells us she only got worse and worse and worse. Mark is wanting to communicate that this disease was incurable. She was broken physically. She was broken emotionally. She was broken spiritually. She was just broken. But then she had a glimmer of hope. She had heard of this man named Jesus Christ, who she believed could possibly cure her of her disease. So picture this. Okay, this crowd is following Jesus, and she's in this crowd following Jesus. And can you picture her, right? Maybe she starts in the middle of the crowd or the back, but she's like slowly trying to work her way up, getting closer and closer to Jesus. And she devises this plan in her, in her mind. She just says, if I just get close enough, and if I, just, if I just touch his garment from what I hear of all these miraculous stories, I know that I'll be healed. So much so that she says that, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And she does touch Jesus, and something miraculous happens. What happens? She's healed. The flow of blood is all dried up, and the scriptures tell us that she knows instantly. She just knows. She goes, it's gone. All the pain, all the discomfort, whatever she was feeling, it was instantaneously gone because she had been healed. There's genuine healing there. And the whole time... Jesus knows exactly what's going down. He knows power has just left him, and he asks the question, who touched me? I love that the scriptures are so honest about the disciples because they're real and raw people, right, just like we are. Because I, when, I, when I read the, about the disciples, I see so much of myself in them. As foolish as they are, I see that same foolishness in my own life. I would have been replying snarky to Jesus the same way. Jesus, you see the crowd pressing around you, but yet you ask who touched me? It's like, it's like you're at Costco, you know, the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and you're back by the samples, and you're, you've got your cart and all, like, your four kids, and, like, people are all, like, r- rushing around you. And I turn to my wife, and I'm like, you know, who touched me? <laughs> and she would be the same way. She would reply, you know, we're at Costco on Sunday before Thanksgiving, yet you ask who touched me? You've got to love the disciples. Jesus knew who touched him. He was doing something that's beautiful and glorious. And I pray, I pray that when you see this, that your heart is just, is just blown by the gospel of grace. In verse 32, it tells us that he looked around to see who had done it. Jesus stopped, and he's looking in the crowd. You may be wondering, what's the big deal? Why didn't Jesus just let her be and be healed? Why did he, why did he have to stop? Why did he have to look around? Because Jesus was going to preach the good news to this woman. 
And she, he was going to show her that not only do you need to be physically restored, you need to be restored wholly in, 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 in your entire life, not only physically, emotionally, spiritually. I want to restore you in, com- in completeness. Verse 33, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Luke's account tells us when the woman saw that she was not hidden, because Jesus, he, he knew, he was looking around, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. This woman knew exactly what had happened to her, and she came in fear and trembling. Do you know why? Do you know why she came in fear and trembling? She had just been healed. Why is she scared? She feared that what she did, she'd be reprimanded for. She fell down at Jesus' feet and told him everything. She feared Jesus' displeasure because the healing that had occurred without his permission. Maybe she, she also feared his anger because she, who was ceremonially unclean, had now made Jesus unclean by touching him. And maybe he'd be angry now. But how does Jesus respond? And I'm praying that you would see Jesus' heart for you. And Jesus' heart for me. And Jesus' heart for both the believer and the non-believer. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. This is, this is profound here. This word daughter, the only recorded instance where Jesus addressed a woman by this title. It was warm and affectionate statement that guaranteed not only this woman's physical well-being, but now her spiritual well-being. You've entered into this relationship with me to now where you're a daughter. You're not just a woman. You're a daughter. You've been given a brand new identity. This also should show us a lesson that the faith that God requires. Sometimes we have some weird faith, right? <laughs> I don't know if you remember how you came to know Christ. But Christ doesn't demand this rock, beautiful, solid faith that it all be intact. This woman had a distorted faith just by saying, you know, like just if I touch him, it wasn't complete in its entirety, but Jesus still blessed her. Which shows you and I, which, which should show you and I that when we come to Christ, we just come to him as we are. And he restores us. He doesn't say, hey, you know, that faith that you have, is, it's not, it's, I'm not feeling it. Go, why don't you go, think about it, go to timeout for three minutes, and then when you got it figured out, you come back, and maybe, and maybe, maybe we can work this out. It's not the heart of Christ. Your faith has made you well. It's another way of saying that it's your faith that has made you whole. Remember, Jesus wasn't just after physical restoration. He was after complete restoration. That's why he brought her out in public. Remember, she had to go around saying, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Can you imagine doing that for 12 years? Can you imagine how many friends you would have? Can you imagine the ostracization? The, can you imagine just the, the social, like just the, the, the social pain that you would feel? And Jesus brings her out in front of all the people. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. I want to make you complete. I want to restore you in completion. Is that good news? And literally that phrase is, your faith has saved you. And that text, really a better way of saying, it should really be go into peace. Go into peace, my daughter. You are healed in wholeness. 
Now what he's saying is like, he's not just saying, hey, I healed you, like go. I remember um, when I was a kid, I grew up in Hawaii, and I would love going to um, the Hilton Hawaiian Village because every year before the Pro Bowl, that's where all the football players stayed. And I would grab my card, my binder of cards, and I would have their cards in there so I can get their autograph, right? And I remember um, um, it was a year that the Buffalo Bills had, had lost. I know. I, I mean, I feel so bad for that team. They lost like four Super Bowls in a row. Um, but, man, when I had gone to them and asked them for, I asked Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas for their autograph and all these other Buffalo Bill players, and they all just rejected me, you know? Like, no, like signing hours are over or no, you know? Like, it was, it's really discouraging. But as opposed to Christ, who is the greatest superhero, he doesn't just heal her and say, you know, oh, go. He doesn't just sign a card and just say, oh, go, you know, go. He, no, he restores her, and he says, go into peace. And what he's really telling her is like, now that you're healed in completion, I want you to go live a life of freedom knowing that. Go live the fullness of life knowing that you're healed entirely and that it's been by me is what Jesus is telling her. Go live that full life. As opposed to her life before where it was nothing but torment. So in other words, Jesus was saying, this next season of your life is going to be good. Christian, how was your life now? Have you gone into peace? And she went into peace because of what Jesus had done for her. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think she told others about everything that Jesus had done for her? We don't know, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bank that she did. Let me tell you about what Jesus did for me. Let me tell you. Let me tell you. Let me tell you, this life I live now is all because of Jesus. You see a theme? Our last reading, snapshot, comes from Mark 5, 35 to 43. I'm going to have our reader read now. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered, he said to them, Why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in to where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they went immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this and told them to give her something to eat. Amen. So Jesus had apparently spoken for quite some time. So he's talking to this woman that has been restored right now. And he doesn't just leave her. He's also teaching her because it says while he was still speaking. So he's talking to this woman and he's still talking to the crowds. And he's talking for so long that in this interim period, guess what happens? Jairus' daughter dies. So if you're Jairus, what are you thinking right now? Like, I mean, maybe the whole time, I don't know, like my daughter's dying. I'm like, Jesus, come on, man. Like, we got important things to do. Come on. Maybe he was, I don't, I don't know, know exactly what he was thinking. 
But people from his house come and they let him know not to bother with Jesus coming over anymore because his daughter's dead. They're basically saying this, it's over. Why even bother the teacher anymore? It's done. He, she's dead. She's declared dead. It's, 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 it's over. Jesus responds by looking at Jairus and saying, what does he say? He looks at him and he says, do not fear, only believe. Jairus, that same faith that you had when you came to me, knowing that I'm the only one that could heal your daughter, keep believing. It's interesting because both of these commands, do not fear and only believe, are in, the, in, are in the present tense, which means they're one of continuous action. He's saying, keep, like, keep believing in me. Don't fear, just keep believing. How many of us need that word today? No matter what you're going through, Jesus is looking at us too, saying, don't fear. Just keep looking at me, keep believing. So... They approach the house of Jairus, and Jesus only allows Peter, James, and John to go with them. Jesus enters his house, and there's commotion. There were people weeping and wailing. There's a good chance that there were, there were paid mourners here. But Jesus, I mean, because Jairus was an important person, there needed to be much mourning. That Jesus then looks at them and says, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. And what do the people do? They literally laugh in his face in a mocking manner. And by their mocking laughter, they were saying, this guy's an idiot. He has no clue. The girl's dead. And guess what? Do you know what dead people are? Biblically, they're unclean. And Jesus risks, Jesus risks this, that if, if, he, if he touches this dead girl, he also risks being unclean. Jesus then pushes them all out. Don't you love that? He's like, man, get out of here. <laughs> Pushes them all out. Peter, James, John, Jairus, your wife, come on. We're going to go. Let's get this done. He approaches this girl that's dead. You notice that? Does death even face Jesus? Is he like trembling like, oh, man, what am I going to do, Father? Like, you got to show up now. No, he just approaches that room. Not even phased by the reality of death. And he approaches this girl, and it says that he takes her by the hand. And he says, Talitha Kumai, which literally means little lamb arise. Don't you love that? He's speaking to death, but he's, he's like Lord over death. All he needs to do is speak, and he speaks a gentle word, little lamb arise. In Mark chapter 4, when he looks at the storm, he's like, be still. And there's an exclamation mark, right? When he looks at the man with the unclean spirit, he's like, get out of him. But he sees this dead little girl, little lamb arise. And what does it say? Immediately, she got up. And everyone was amazed. He then commands them to not tell anyone and orders that this little lamb be given some food to eat, which shows that Jesus' heart was also for complete restoration, right? He wasn't like, man, who's the man? Look what I did. And he just goes off. He looks for her well-being. And even though she's been risen from the dead, he says, find her something to eat. You notice that this girl is 12 years of age. I don't know if there's any connection between the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Another thing to ponder about. But do you notice what the three characters that Jesus encountered had in common? They were all unclean. Are you beginning to see Jesus' heart for, for all of us here? They were all in desperate need. They all needed to be rescued. And 
You and I have everything in common with them. You and I, we can be like the demon-possessed man. We could, be, we could be like, you know, spiritually oppressed, and we could be just running around aimlessly, like doing our own thing, setting up our own kingdom. We could be out of our minds. We can be like the girl, the woman who had internal bleeding for 12 years where we're just, we're just trying to look for, for, uh, for a solution other than Jesus to, to the answer to our problem. And we look elsewhere. Some of us are like Jairus' daughter. We're just spiritually dead. And in our sin, this is where we are. We are, we are spiritually oppressed. We are spiritually diseased. We are spiritually dead. And we are spiritually unclean. Let me ask you something. Is there ever a moment in our lives in which we are to not trust in Jesus' righteousness? Is there ever a moment in our lives in which we are to trust in our own righteousness? Romans 1 tells us the gospel is the power of God for our salvation. And it's not just talking about a ticket to heaven, okay? When you look at Paul's letter of Romans, he's talking about salvation in its completeness. Jesus wants the gospel to penetrate every avenue of our heart, so much so that as A.W. Pink writes, that we would not only realize that we're saved from the penalty of sin, but in this lifetime, Jesus is saving us from the power of sin. And then in the future, when, he's re- when he returns, he's going to save us from the presence of sin. And we need this good news because we can become like, like, we can become like this. Because at some point in our lives, guess what? You and I don't believe the gospel at times, right? At times in our lives, we don't believe the good news. And when I talk about a gospel-centered theology, I'm talking about looking at Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension, and return, and using that as a lens in which we look at all of life. And is there an area of your life in which those things don't apply? No. We need the gospel. We need the good news. It's the only hope that we have. Jesus is the only answer that we have, and he is the, he is the answer to every single challenge that you and I will face. I pray that as we look here, I'm going to have the praise team come up. Um, I just pray we could just spend a couple minutes in prayer together. And I pray that you would see Jesus' heart for both the believer and the non-believer. Jesus' heart is for complete restoration. He wants us to be made spiritually whole. He wants us all as his children to walk into our identity and to go into the peace that we now have in Christ. And some of us here have been maybe just restless spiritually. I'm amazed at how many Christians are, are looking to other, other things to, to define who they are other than the fact that they're a child of God and that's all that matters. And I pray that we could just, just pray. We could come to him and... Um, and we have, we have our elders here that, that are willing to, to pray for you. If you need prayer, I mean, just come, just come up to the altar. We would love to pray for you. Um, if you just want to pray where you're sitting, that's fine too. But I'm just going to ask, just respond to God. Have you been responding to the good news that the holy God, the only one that does what, what is always good, right, and perfect, even though you rebelled against him, even though you choose to rule and reign apart from him, he relentlessly pursued you, he relentlessly pursued me. And, he, and it's awesome because as soon as, as soon as Jesus enters the scene, God in the flesh, God with skin on enters the story. That character that always does what is good, right, and perfect, he enters the story and he lives the perfect life. He lives a sinless life. He performs the, the miracles. He preaches the good news. He sets the captives free. 
And then he goes to the cross. And for all the rejection of the reign and rule of God over our lives, that's what he dies for. Every sin was laid upon Christ. Can you imagine the gravity of that? Every negative thought that you've, you and I have had, every negative deed that we've committed was laid upon him, and Jesus was aware of every single one of them, but yet he was a humble king who did it because he could only be the only substitution. And he rose again from the dead on the third day, and in so doing, he proved that he indeed is Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and that sin and death have nothing over him. And now he offers new life to everyone that would trust in his name. And if you had not done that, you can do that today. There's no magic formula, no magic prayer. But Romans 10 tells us, right, that we are to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead and then you'll be saved. If that's you, respond today. Maybe for some of you, you just have not been believing the gospel. You've been looking to some other thing for your identity. You've been looking for some other solution. Or like, like me, you've been leaving Jesus, saying, here, Jesus, sit down. Let me, let me figure this out. If that's you, you need to repent because you're believing in a false gospel. Then repent and then believe the good news. Amen? Let's pray. I encourage you, if you do need prayer, please, please come up and we'd love to pray for you. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. God, I don't know why. I don't understand it. I don't understand grace a lot of times. I don't understand your love a lot of times. I don't know how you could, how you could love things that are unclean, how you were always willing to get your hands dirty. And you're the only being in this universe that can walk into a situation and make an unclean thing clean because you are the only holy one. And that's what you do for us is that when we trust in what you've done for us, we literally become holy as you are holy. We're given a new righteousness. We're given this this new standing before God the Father. And Father, help us to believe that because all of us in this room, there's not a single person in this room that doesn't ever struggle with unbelief. Father, because sometimes we don't believe um, we don't believe that we have all things in Christ. Sometimes we believe that we have to work for our salvation, and it's all about if we do this, you'll love us more. <clears throat> and that's a false gospel. We are to solely rest in what Christ has done for us on the cross. So help us, because we we desperately need you. There is not a moment in our day, a second in our day, in which we don't need you. There's not a challenge that that we face in which you're not the answer for. Thank you that we have the hope of glory living in us. And would it transform us? And would we too, like the demon-possessed man, like, um, like the woman who had been bleeding, would we go and tell people of how glorious you are and how you're the answer to the challenge they're facing? So Lord, just... I pray, too, that the gospel would restore us wholly, that we would know that Galatians 5 tells us it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We are to walk as freed men and women willing to give up our lives for the sake of the gospel. So help us, Lord. Help us in our unbelief. Increase our faith. Help us to always see more clearly who we are in Christ. We love you. We are We're so grateful to you, and would you be glorified and magnified in our lives.
It's in the only name that, that matters that we pray. You're a son's name. Thank you. Amen.